0: Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Jonah, chapter 3, and we're going through this book of Jonah in all of our life groups and in our worship services. And many of you were in a life group earlier, and I hope you, as you study this, really grapple with this subject God's been using in your life. So the first week, we talked about Jonah running from God, and we talked about how common that is. He's not the only one who ever ran from God and maybe maybe you've run from god maybe some of you are running from god now or maybe it's been more subtle sometimes it's more direct i'm not going to do what you tell me to do god and sometimes we just sort of ignore god and do it in a more it's subtle it's disobedience nonetheless but more subtle disobedience and then the next week we talked and we talked that week about how god brought judgment to him rightly so and he was thrown into the sea and how god brought grace and god provided the great fish and then last week we talked about returning to god and how god used the stomach of the Great fish! How God uses circumstances often to help us see things more clearly and to understand um, perspective. And Jonah began to see a new perspective in the stomach of that great fish. God uses circumstances to mold us and shape us and teach us and remind us. And and Jonah then cried out to God, and God uh, had the fish vomit Jonah out onto the dry land. And this week we're going to talk about revival from God. So let's. Pick up the story now in Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read all of that chapter. The Bible says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. And Jonah set set out on the first day of this walk of the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then he issued a a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Well, let's talk about revival from God. Perhaps the least likely place to expect an awakening from God would have been Nineveh. Nineveh and Israel had been, for generations, for generations, they had battled against each other. Nineveh was, and the Assyrian nation was far from God. They worshipped pagan gods. They, the Bible says here clearly, as it says in other places in Scripture, they were doing evil things and going the wrong direction and following anything but God. And of all the places for revival to come, for an awakening to come, who would have guessed Nineveh? Sometimes God works in the most surprising ways, In the most surprising ways, among the most surprising people. Uh, Revival came in our nation in the late 60s and through the early 70s. And perhaps some of you this hour, certainly some last hour were affected by this revival we call the Jesus Movement. And it was a revival where many young people came to know the Lord as Savior. Many of them got right with God. Revival often happens among the young. There's something about as we get older, sometimes we get more hardened and more jaded if we're not careful. And revival came primarily among younger people. And really, it's really over our nation, a nationwide revival. There's a movie coming out about a little part of that revival that happened in California among a subset group. It'll tell the story. I've only seen the trailers of it I think it's called um, uh, Revival... uh, Jesus Revolution. That's what it is. Jesus Revolution. And I look forward to seeing it. I know a a good deal about that story. And the subset that God worked in that was surprising, I think perhaps the most surprising was among the hippies. It wasn't the only group affected, but certainly the hippie subculture was affected. And those of you who know a little bit about the hippies, we sanitize it more now. It wasn't just wasn't just flowers and love. It was also in peace. It was also rebellion and sexual immorality and uh, rampant drug use. And really in our nation, be- beyond just alcohol, drug use from that time to this time has gone unabated in it, the history of our nation. And the hippie movement was a, certainly a big part of that. But the last group many would have expected, the last group, the Nineveh of that age, large numbers came to Christ, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds baptized in the ocean there in California and really spread around the nation. And sometimes God just brings revival in the most surprising ways to the most surprising people, to the last people you'd expect, and to Nineveh of all places, Nineveh. And I want you to note from this four principles about revival that I think will be helpful to us as we consider revival in our own age. Number one, would you know, just write this down if you would. Revival is born of second chances. It's born of second chances. In fact, the very idea, the word revival is revival. It's about new life, about life coming to those who have had life, about coming back. It's a second chance. And it's a revival time in the history of Jonah, because the Bible says here in verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You may remember back in chapter one, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, but Jonah ran from God, as many do. Jonah went his own way, as so often happens. And so through all the circumstances God used, all the difficulties, all the struggles and trials, God would use that to give Jonah a second chance. And the Bible says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And sometimes we need second chances. And I'm thankful that God is a God who gives second chances. Aren't you? Aren't you glad God gives second chances? I wonder if there's anyone else here who's been like Jonah. Maybe you've run from God. Maybe directly you're saying, shake your fist at God, you're not going to tell me what to do. Or maybe in a more subtle way, you've just disobeyed God in a subtle way, but you've run from God and you need a second chance. There was a time perhaps in your life where you were serious about the things of faith, where you gave your life to Christ, you said Jesus is Lord, and you meant it. But somewhere down the line, either through circumstances or just neglect or maybe even outright rebellion, you turned from the things of God and forgot about the things of God and like Jonah, you need a second chance. And I'm glad for a second chance giving God. But Nineveh needed a second chance and Nineveh who had sinned against the Lord, run from God, did evil. May I say Nineveh in many ways sounds a lot like our own country and our own generation and Nineveh needed a second chance and our nation needs a second chance. I did my dissertation on a guy named J. Edwin Orr, who was a great historian of spiritual awakenings back in the day. And he, he, at the end of his life, he started making it a, a distinction. He talked about revival as the work that God does in believers, where they, who, those who know Christ as Savior find new life in Him again and come back to the Lord. And spiritual awakening is the awakening in the culture and how people who don't know Christ as Savior are awakened to the realization that God has a call upon their life. They have a need for God, the awareness of their sins, sometimes through the witness of other believers and many come to faith in Christ. And in fact, in the Jesus movement, many got right with God, but it's also the highest time of baptisms in our nation's history. That uh, early 70s period, more people were baptized than any other time as so many in our culture were awakened. I'm going to use the word revival in a broader sense because Nineveh really is more of an awakening in them, but God used Jonah when he finally obeyed and God worked in the life of Nineveh. And I wanna remind you that not only did Jonah need a second chance and Nineveh needed a second chance, but America needs a second chance. We are very very much like Nineveh in many ways. We've turned from God in large measure. We have run from God in many ways. We've ignored God, we've argued with God, we've tried to redefine sin or argue there is no such thing and we're much like Nineveh, we need revival. And while I'm at it, I suspect there are many of you here who would say, I need a second chance as well, because there are things in my life that make it evident I need a second chance from God. And maybe my, maybe I was just as rebellious as Jonah in the sense that I ran from him outwardly, but maybe mine was more subtle, but I ran from God nonetheless. And you come to this place recognizing that you need a second chance. I've got, I've got good news for you. Revival is born of second chances. It comes out of second chances. Nineveh happened, this great awakening in Nineveh happened because God gave them a second chance and God gave the prophet a second chance. There's a second principle I'd like you to note. Would you write this down? Revival recognizes God's authority. And really the story of this awakening in the life of Jonah and in the life of Nineveh is a recognition of the authority of God. So let's note what happens here in this second chance, the second time the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Would you just kind of see first this activity? Verse 2, in verse 2, the Bible says, the Lord says to Jonah, get up. Now, God has said that before. Back in chapter 1, the Lord said, get up. And the Bible says here, Jonah, verse 3, Jonah got up. Do you see that? And then in verse 2, the Bible says, go to the great city of Nineveh. Well, that echoes chapter 1. In chapter 1, God said, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. And here in verse three, the Bible says, and Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's commands. Now that's different than chapter one because in chapter one, God said, get up. Jonah got up, he said, go, and Jonah went. He just went in the wrong direction. He went the absolute opposite direction from what God had said. He tried to find a a ship in the opposite direction as though he could run from God. And so we see the activity, get up, Jonah got up. Go, Jonah went. And then here's his job. Preach the message that I tell you. I want you to preach the message that I tell you. And that's what Jonah did in verses 3 and 4. He proclaimed. And here's the message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now that's a happy message, huh? So Jonah goes to this city that's known for wickedness, and he preaches this message. You're about to be destroyed. God's judgment is going to come upon you. You've got 40 days to change your ways, or God is going to judge this nation. Now, that's a happy message. Jonah might have thought, couldn't you give me a little happier? Couldn't I just tell people how much you love them and how nice you are? And couldn't I just say how sin's no big deal and it doesn't really matter? And couldn't I just say to them, listen, just kind of actualize yourself and understand, you know, that God has, he's sort of working in you and he doesn't mind. You do whatever you want, sort of, as long as you sort of think about him once in a while. That's not the message at all. He says a hard message, a direct message, and a true message. Sin is wicked. Judgment is certain. And God is telling you to do something different. God's calling you to repent. And the Bible says that's exactly what Jonah did. Because revival always leads to action. It's not just an emotion, but it leads to action. I've watched with great interest the revival, or at least the stirrings that are happening in Asbury College and other places. Great interest. And while I don't know what will happen, I can't know until over time you begin to see more of the fruit of those things. It can't be a bad thing to see young people praising God in a generation where so few young people are praising God. It can't be a bad thing to see young people getting right with God. It can't be a bad thing to see people turning to God's word, people hungry for God. Desiring the manifest presence of God in their lives, to recognize who God is. That cannot be a bad thing. It seems to me there's a stirring here that it's of the Lord. And while I don't know all that will happen, if it is everything that I pray that it will be, if God stirs our nation, if God gives us this second chance as a nation, I'm praying that that stirring of our emotions will lead to activity. Now, listen, God made us with both logic and emotions, and both matter. He made us with a heart and with a mind, and both matter. But let's not ignore, while We can recognize the dangers. You can have just an emotionalism that doesn't really mean anything. You could just praise the Lord and not have really a commitment to activity. Let's recognize the other danger. We talked about it not that long ago as we're going through the book of Revelation. The church at Laodicea who had plenty of the intellect, but they did not have a heart for God. They left their first love, the Bible says. And that's a grave danger as well. And So let's put those in balance. We don't want just emotionalism without change. We don't want just to go through the motions just to know the things of God and to have left our first love. So let's pray that God will continue to work in our lives and that God will give our nation a second chance and that we will recognize God's authority. And finally, Jonah said, all right, Lord, you say go, and this time I'm going to obey you because you're God. And I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And I'm going to put activity My prayer. So I've Joan had said, he was Jonah was a prophet of God. He had said, God, I'm gonna do what you said. And then when God said go, He he said, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not doing that. But God has authority. When you trusted Christ to save you, if you did, you recognize that Jesus is Lord. And when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying you have authority in my life. So if you tell me to get up, I'm to get up. And if you tell me to go, then I'm to go. And if you tell me to preach, then I'm to preach. And God, I want to be faithful to what you've called me to do because you are my Lord. That's what God's authority is all about. And I'm praying you'll recognize that. I'm praying we'll recognize that in our, in our nation again. I'm praying believers will recognize this and so that we will get up and go and preach. And God has a message for you. There's someone that God will use you to help hear the message of his love. That God will use you to help hear the message of judgment that he'll help you to use to hear that God has a better way and a better plan and perhaps God would use you to make a difference in this world and revival happens when we recognize that God has authority in our lives to do what he wants there's a third thing I want you to note about revival revival turns from sin and turns to God so revival turns from and revival turns to both are a part of this turning this repentance Revival turns from sin, but it turns to God. It doesn't just recognize sin, but it's turning to God. And it's turning to God because it's turning us back on self and sin. So let's note from the story of Nineveh four attributes of revival. The first I want you to note is faith. Verse, verse 5 is a fascinating verse. The Bible says, Then the people of Nineveh believed God. So here's this unpopular message. You're about to get destroyed. Judgment is coming. And Nineveh believed God of all people in the world. Nineveh. They fought against God. They've rebelled against God. They've run from God. They've had wicked lives. And yet they recognized by faith, they believed that God is who he said he is. And that God has called them to something better. And they placed their trust in God. You know the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not just not unlikely to please God, but it's impossible. God wants you to place your trust in him, that he is able to accomplish his purposes. That he means it when he says what he says in his word. That he has something, a life for you that is worth living. That he wants to remove from you the things that are harmful and damaging. God calls us to trust him when he talks about wrong or sin or judgment. He calls us to trust him when when he talks about love and grace and mercy. And the people of Nineveh had faith, and then they had humility. They proclaimed a fast. Boy, that's something serious when you stop eating. They're dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is uncomfortable. It chafes against the skin. There's a reason why you don't wear sackcloth. But it reminded the people of their sinfulness, and how much they needed God. And humility is about recognizing our need for God. Can I just tell you something? We ought to be humble because we have much to be humble about. And maybe you've said, I don't need God. I, don't, I mean, maybe things get bad, but I don't really need God. Let me tell you, pride is a dangerous thing. And God has ways of reminding us that we need him. And perhaps God would use circumstances in your life to remind you. You might say, listen, I've got, um, I've got talents and abilities. And yeah, who gave you those talents? And... Who gave you that health that you take for granted? Who gave you the air that you breathe and the life that you live? Who gave that to you? And when we humble ourselves, we're not saying we're not valuable to God. The Bible says in Christ we are forgiven of our sins. We are made whole in Christ. We become children of God. We're joint heirs with Jesus. We were created in the image of God. We have inherent value because of that. But we're saying in humility, I cannot do this on my own. I recognize the sinfulness of my life. I'm a broken human. I need the Lord, and I want what only God can do. That's what we're saying in humility. And the people of Nineveh were saying something many in Israel were unwilling to say. I'm going to bow my knee before God, and I'm going to humble myself, and he will lift me up. I'm going to place my faith and trust in him. I'm going to recognize my need for him. Listen, you'll never trust Christ as Savior until you see you need him. And you will never follow him as Lord until you humble yourself and recognize your great need for the Lord. So I've said faith and humility and then prayer is a third attribute of revival. Verse 8 says, Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, the king said, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. That's prayer. Call out earnestly to God. Pray, seek the Lord. And when we seek the Lord, the Lord responds to that. Revival is a part of seeking the Lord. One of the reasons revival comes is because people are seeking Him. I I believe the reason God is giving this nation a second chance is because there are people who are seeking God, people who are seeking God for revival in their own lives, and people who are seeking God for revival in their church, and people who are seeking God for revival in their nation. God's stirring in this place is because there are people who have been praying for revival and earnestly calling out to God, crying out for personal revival and corporate revival and national revival. One of the great revivals of history is um, a revival, sometimes called the prayer revival, sometimes called the prayer revival of 1858, but it was really from the fall of 1857 to the, through the spring of 1859, 18 months. And in, that, in those 18 months, one out of every 30 people in America, we had 30 million people in population then, one out of 30 people came to know Christ as Savior in 18 months. We have well over 300 million now. That would be like more than 10 million people coming to faith in Christ just in the next 18 months. It happened not because of a program or because of some personality. By the way, it's one of the encouraging things I see about this movement of God. It's not based around a personality or a program, but it's of the person of the Lord Jesus. And people began to pray and seek the Lord's face in 1857 in earnest ways, and God just answered that prayer and fed that hunger and did great things among those who were believers and a great awakening beyond and spread throughout the nation. Perhaps God is doing a work right now that's absent of personalities and programs because he wants people just to turn to Jesus, just to turn to Jesus. You're turning from something, but you're turning to something, to someone. And you don't just turn from sin, you don't just recognize that sin is wrong and I I need to stop that, but we're turning to the Lord. And revival is about the Lord himself, about seeking Jesus and turning to Jesus and running to him. And then we see what I call repentance. The Bible says, uh, the king said at the end of verse eight, each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. And who knows, God may turn and relent and he may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And they turned from and they turned to. And they said, self and sin, that's not gonna lead me any longer. I'm turning to the Lord Jesus and seeking his face There's a fourth thing I want you to note: Revival results in God's forgiveness and mercy. It results in God's forgiveness and mercy. Verse 10 says this. God saw their actions. God was watching. He saw their actions. He knew the wrong. He knew the right. God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. So let's note four things about the results of revival. Number one, God wants what is right for you. Did you know that? He wants what's right for you. It's right for you to turn from evil and to truth. I know we live in a generation that says there's no such thing as wrong. Whatever you feel like, that's what you should do. Whatever you want, whatever you like, whatever you feel. But the Lord said that it tells us there are things that are wrong and things that are right. Things that are harmful and damaging and that lead to judgment. Things that are right and lead to God's blessing and presence and God wants what is right for you. Secondly, note God wants what is best for you. It was in the interest of Nineveh for them to turn to God. It was best for them. It might not have felt that way when they were hearing a harsh message, but God wondered what was best for them. God wondered what was best for Jonah. It might not have felt that way when he was in the stomach of a great fish. I remember coming to this realization in my life, that my parents wanted what was best for me. And it was shocking. It was shocking. Because I didn't think they wanted what was best for me. Well, my parents disciplined me. It didn't seem like they wanted what was best for me. Man, my parents were serious about discipline. They're from the old school. I think the statute of limitation is over for my mom. My father's passed away years ago, so I can say to you now they used to just, they were like serious. They used to do, not just like take away a privilege, which is a Get me a helpful discipline, but I am from the days when you got whoopins. Whoopins. <laughs> it didn't seem like that was, they wondered what was best for me. My parents said no to me. They said no. That didn't seem best for me. They didn't let me just do anything I wanted to do, they didn't just say, hey, whatever you feel like. Little Doug, if you want to do it, you just go ahead. Anything you want, Doug. We just, yeah, they didn't do that. They said, sometimes they just said, no, you can't. That didn't seem like that was best for me. They corrected me. My parents did not believe that it was in my best interest just to do my own thing. They weren't worried deeply about hurting my self-esteem. And so sometimes they said, what you're doing, Doug, is the wrong thing, and we're going to correct you. You're going in the wrong direction. You're thinking the wrong way. You're acting the wrong way. Your feelings aren't accurate in this instance. And they would correct me. That did not feel like it was in my best interest. But the day came when I realized they were acting imperfect as they were in my best interest. They wanted what was best for me. What a surprise that was for me to find out. Because it didn't feel very much... For Jonah, like God had his best interest at heart when he got thrown into the ocean. It didn't feel very much for Jonah, like God wondered what was best for him when he found himself in the stomach of a great fish for three days and three nights. That could not have felt like it was in their best interest, but it was. And Nineveh, as they heard that message, they they could have easily have thought, you know, this is just, why so negative? Why so harsh? God did it because it was in their best interest. And I'm telling you, God in heaven says no to you, and he corrects you, and he disciplines you, because he wants what's best for you. That's the third thing I want you to note: God is willing to give forgiveness. God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with. He forgave. I cannot understand why. These were sinful people. They did not deserve forgiveness. They did not deserve forgiveness. They were sinning against God for long periods of time, ignoring the things of God. They did not deserve forgiveness. And yet, in their repentance, God forgave. Can I tell you something? You don't either. You don't either. Nor do I. But in Christ, I can be forgiven. Christ paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. That's mine, that's what I deserved. Christ died in my place on the cross and gave his life for me. And in Christ, I can be forgiven of every sin. Every sin. And we don't take that lightly as though it's a small thing. Christ paid the penalty of his blood on a cross, but I can be forgiven. In Christ, you can be forgiven. Can I tell you that? Some of you are here who need to be saved. And God brought you to this place so that you would hear the message of the gospel that you need Christ, you need Him, and Christ can save you. You can find forgiveness of sin because Christ paid the penalty for you. And this day I'm praying you'll give your life to Christ. Some of you are Christians who have found forgiveness in Christ but you wanted to pick up the burdens of your past as though God didn't forgive. And I am thankful for God who's able and willing to forgive. And then number four, would you know, God is willing to give mercy. The Bible says He relented from the disaster He had threatened them with and He did not do it. That is God Mercy is the flip side of grace. Grace is where God gives us the love we don't deserve. Mercy is where God withholds from us the judgment that we do deserve. And God is willing to give mercy. He was willing to say to Nineveh, even though you deserve judgment, I'm going to give you love. Nineveh didn't deserve it. Jonah didn't deserve it. You and I don't deserve it. But God gives it. He gives it. Next week, we'll see more of God's heart for forgiveness, God's heart for mercy, God's love for us. Unmerited, undeserved, and yet he gives it. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? And right where you are, just want to, for a moment, I want to talk with you. I just bow your head, if you would, please, and close your eyes. When I said, just a moment ago, I said something about God giving second chances. And I said... Some of us need second chances. Some of you are here who need second chances. Is that you? Maybe, you're, maybe your rebellion against God was outward. You know, you're not going to tell me what to do, God. Or maybe your rebellion was subtle, just as rebellious, but much more subtle. And you've drifted from God, or you've forgotten about God, or you've ignored God, or you've argued with God, but it's there nonetheless. And maybe you'd say, I know I need revival. Now I'm going to ask us to keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If that's you, if you said, I need revival, I need a second chance. Would you just lift your hand up in the air and put it back down? All right, just lift it in. All right. I'm sure there are others. Put it right back down. Anybody else? I, I know, I need a second chance. I need revival. Would you just lift your hand in the air and put it back down all over this room? Just acknowledge before God what he already knows. In the balcony, on the main floor, just lift your hand. I need revival. Put it back down. God wants us to see that deep need in our life. He wants us to recognize that we need him. And revival comes in response to our recognition that we need more of God. We need what only he can give. I wonder if you wouldn't say, Christian, if that's you, you said, I need a second chance. I wonder if you wouldn't say, God, I, would you send revival to my soul? Would you help me to seek you fully, surrender fully, follow you fully? Some of you are here who need to be saved. Would you repent of your sin right where you are? Place your faith in Christ. Ask Jesus to save you. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave for you. Trust him as Savior. Right where you are this day, give your life to Christ. He'll save you. Father, I want to thank you for this incredible story. How how surprising, Nineveh of all places, to awaken their hearts. And yet, you work in some surprising ways. And there are many of us here, many many who will hear this message, who need a fresh touch from you, who need revival, who need a second chance, who are maybe like Jonah in some way they've run from you or rebelled against you, whether outwardly or subtly who are like Nineveh, ignoring you for long periods of time and yet realizing suddenly how much they need you, would you, Lord, send revival to our lives, to our church, to our nation? Would you do a work in the lives of those who need you as Savior, that they would be awakened to their need for you and that they would respond by trusting you as Savior and following you? And I thank you that you use this story from so long ago. It's so relevant to this day and this age and this place and this time and this need. So, Father, I pray you'll do your work and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.